Hello and welcome to the Medical Humanities Podcast, the official podcast of BMJ's Medical Humanities Journal. We invite you to listen in and join the conversation from academic discussions happening in our journal to interviews with filmmakers and artists and global perspectives on health and medicine from around the world. Stay up to date with public discussions that matter to medicine and to the humanities because life happens at the intersections. And welcome to the Medical Humanities Podcast. This is Brandy Skilache here today, and I'm going to be speaking with Roberta Bivens from the University of Warwick about issues of immigration and health. Welcome, Roberta. Thank you. It's good to be here. I'm really excited to talk to you. As you know, here at Medical Humanities Journal and also at the podcast, we've been trying to focus on issues that are that are deeply central to current events. And one of the things that has repeatedly been an issue uh, in the United States, in the UK, various other places, has been immigration. And particularly, I wanted to ask you uh, a bit about immigration and health and about your own work. Wonderful. Well, I have been studying the history of immigration and health in the United Kingdom since about 2004. It's, uh, It's something that's been really important to my research. What I'm interested in, in particular, is the ways in which immigration intersects with medical research, but also with the running of the British National Health Service, um, which, of Mm -hmm. course, is an enormous venture. It employs about one in every 17 British people, and that's not counting the people here who have migrated to the UK to work for it. Mm -hmm. That's a that's pretty that's that's enormous. I mean, and I I think (laughs) for a U.S. For our U.S. audience members, this is a, it's still something that they don't understand particularly well. No, I think, I mean, I, it, as, a, as, a, as an American who moved to Britain and has become a British citizen, it, uh, it took a while for me to get the hang of the National Health Service myself. It's just so simple. You go get medical care and you go home and you're <laughs> done because you've paid for it in your taxes already. Um, but because it is universal care, it also is an absolutely enormous system. And it requires an enormous volume of staffing. And so one of the really interesting things about the history of the National Health Service is that without migration and without mass migration, the NHS wouldn't have been able to survive its inception in 1948. And so their histories have always been really tightly interconnected. And in fact, the National Health Service has been a place where immigration law has always been contested. Uh, and the ways in which restrictions of immigration are dangerous to the nation have always played out. So it's a, it's a really interesting counterexample to the narrative that we're more familiar with of seeing immigrants as a threat to health. Here in Britain, it's exceptionally obvious that immigrants are, are protecting our health every day mm-hmm. through their labor in the NHS. That's, that's really interesting. And of, of course, um, you are in in many ways, one of, I think, one of the, the better experts on the on the area of history of immigration and health, which is why we're really happy to have you here today. Before we um, hear a little bit more about that history, could you say, uh, how, how has your work changed? How have you been reacting and responding to the sort of narratives that are going on right now, which tend to be very anti-immigration, um, both here in the United States, but also in the UK with Brexit? Well, in, in a lot of ways, these narratives are, are exactly the same as they have been since Britain put its first restrictions on immigration in 1905. 
it's a story about hostility, about fear, um, about using medical explanations to cover xenophobia. And so what I'm seeing is deja vu. Um, but at the same time, it's also really worth exploring why those fears have persisted. And that's one of the things that I've tried to do in my research. Why are we afraid of migrants? Why do we say we're afraid of migrants on the grounds of health and well-being? How does that fit with actual social stresses? And so I've been looking at it particularly in relation to the mass migrations that occurred to Britain, to Britain, rather than away from Britain, which had been an emigrant sending nation up to that point um, in, 19, uh, in and after 1945. And it, that, of course, leads to questions at the time about acute and contagious disease. There was a, a real sense that with the National Health Service and with the many wartime campaigns to eradicate disease here in Britain among the British population, that perhaps these wonderful benefits were going to be lost if disease was being imported into the country, um, or if the burdens on the National Health Service that were presented by new populations were going to overwhelm it. So really, almost from that very first moment of the post-war period, civil servants here have been looking for reasons and ways in which migration was damaging to the British health service and British health care, and they haven't found them. Because in <laughs> fact, most migrants are young and they're healthy. Um, and that, of course, is just as true of migrants today as it was of migrants in 1948 or in 1905. And it has been consistently true across every studied population, with the exception of cases where those migrants are also refugees and are therefore suffering from those many strains and stresses of being expelled from their homes. Right. And actually, it's interesting because uh, I'm, I'm in Cleveland, Ohio, United States, and there's I worked at a medical history museum, and one of the stories that we covered were some propaganda pieces that had been released, essentially um, mm. sh saying that cholera, which they called Asiatic cholera at the time, was yeah. caused by immigrants from places like Turkey. And so they had these propaganda posters where death was coming uh, over on a boat with a fez on his head, you know, like dressed yes, in kind of dressed Turkish as costume. A, yeah. Right. Yeah. And it, what's interesting is the first cases in, of cholera in Cleveland were actually brought here from Canada. So um, literally just yeah. across the lake, not across the ocean. No. And the thing is, those kinds of diseases, yeah, they what we find difficult uh, what we as populations find difficult is taking into our heads the idea that, yes, human movement means disease movement. If people are moving, their germs are coming with them. But in fact, that's true whether they're a migrant or a tourist or a business person or, in fact, anyone else. You can't say, we're going to admit millions, literally millions of people every single year to come and go to Disneyland or whatever it may be. <laughs> Um, and they're not going to bring any diseases with them, but these, what, 700 people on the border are, are clearly going to riddle us with disease. It's illogical, and that's because that's because this fear is illogical. Right. And, and of course, cholera is not actually caused, it's, it's, it's caused by polluting your own water system, which here in Cleveland, it was, it was because we pumped sewage into the lake that we got our drinking water from, but it's much easier to point yeah. the finger at immigrants. And so often that that propaganda and rhetoric is pointing at something that isn't 
isn't even based on facts. I mean, it's not just that it's not based on facts around who's causing the disease, but the actual understanding of disease is wrong. Exactly. The, the mechanism by which these diseases uh, operate is poorly understood. A great example comes up in the UK case where uh, as it became evident that sickle cell anemia was a genetic condition, people started stirring up fear that by allowing um, people from West Africa into Britain, uh, in West Africa, the prevalence of sickle cell is, is greater than in the UK, that they would pollute the bloodstream of the British nation. Uh, now, of course, we know now and we knew then that that's not how sickle cell anemia works that it's not a dominant condition, but a recessive one, and so you can't spread it. Um, but nonetheless, the, this, these ideas about mechanism had absolutely nothing to do with the much more common pattern, which is to seek the objectivity, the supposed objectivity, of medicine as a disguise for what is fundamentally uh, discrimination, racism, and fear. Right, right. And so your work uh, has been looking particularly interested in the fact that your work is looking at that post-war period and the dawn of the NHS mm -hmm. and how um, it sounds like you're saying that really the, there was latent, as far back as it began, these fears were sort of in there. And so they, they percolate and they appear at certain times more than others. Can you say more about what drives them to become, say, the foregoing rhetoric in a particular situation? Yeah, well, a variety of things happen. I mean, in the post-war period is really interesting because it is a, a time when our societies in um, Europe and in North America had realized the dangers of uh, allowing racism to become political ideology. I think World War II made it very evident to everyone that if you accept that kind of racism as a basis for how you treat other human beings, things are going to go wrong. And so the ideas of scientific racism were very much um, de deprecated. And yet at the same time, both within uh, the sciences and within the wider society, racism persisted and ideas that there are scientifically provable racial qualities also persisted. So many, 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 I have to say this here, Many, many, many scientists fought against this incredibly hard and made real statements, really clear statements, as they do today, that there is no such thing as biological race. But the idea stayed. And of course, we still use it in medicine and epidemiology today. We use notions of race and racialized identities as tools, as shorthands for understanding much broader social determinants of health. Um, so race is there but it's not okay to talk about it. And so people are looking for ways to uh, discriminate on racial grounds and on cultural and ethnic grounds without exposing themselves as uh, having values that are no longer socially acceptable. And so you get this very complex pattern of, of uses of medicine and medical knowledge. So that's one part of the equation. The other part of the equation is a lot clearer and more straightforward. In fact, there was in the post-war period an epidemiological line between those nations where health was predominantly affected increasingly by chronic non-contagious disease and those countries that were affected mostly by acute contagious diseases. And that line followed the color line. 
And that mean, meant that it was quite easy to start arguing about imported disease as a way of talking about imported human diversity um, that was more socially acceptable. And this then is uh, powered and, and fueled by things like outbreaks of illness. So one of the really memorable events in Britain that occurred exactly at the same moment as the first um, important racially restrictive immigration law, which was the Commonwealth Immigrants Act of 1962, was an outbreak of smallpox in Karachi, which was then imported to Britain. So something really happened. Disease was really imported to Britain, but it was imported because this act had caused many, many people to suddenly, urgently travel to Britain so as not to lose their rights. I see. If they hadn't been forced to move, no one would have traveled through an epicenter of, of smallpox. Right, right. They would have waited until the outbreak was over because there would be no urgency. Yeah, exactly. It was the idea that suddenly they were going to lose their rights as British subjects to come and work in the United Kingdom that forced people to move themselves faster. And of course, caused an enormous rush on the fragile infrastructure of the, the Pakistani public health system. So this is very interesting because it's a real mistake of cause and effect there, isn't it? It's a, it's a sense in which yeah. um, in, in the historical retrospective lens, people are, are sometimes like, well, those things happened close together, right? So it, it, they <laughs> yes. fail to see the causal link. Coincidence is not causation. That's mm -hmm. right. That's right. And so these kinds of coincidences then become reified. And so after the 1961-62 smallpox outbreak, it became very hard for for example, the epidemiologists in the Ministry of Health to say, you know, actually, immigration is not causing us major health problems. It's not a strain on the NHS. We don't need to have all of these border restrictions. They're really expensive. They're very ineffective. And, you know, they're actually costing us money and radiologists and technology that would better be used in the NHS. Because people don't believe them. They say, well, but look, the smallpox, it was imported. That was real. How can you say that it's not happening? Right. Well, and of course, I, I will, would like to, for a moment, talk about the U.S. context right now, where we actually have manufactured mm. crises that are um, <laughs> only seem to be crises when it's politically expedient. Um, and yeah. we're wasting enormous amounts of money and resources chasing after things when we have, you know, as you say, there's much better avenues for processing, for handling health rather than, you know, prevention isn't worth an ounce of, uh, of cure, right? But, um, or, or no, I've got that backwards. Yeah. And the way to prevent, the way to prevent uh, epidemic disease is through public health. It's not through discrimination mm -hmm. at the border. Right. Exactly. So can you say a bit now, I know we're, we're running close to time. Um, and this has been fascinating. I feel like we could talk much, much longer about this. <laughs> could you, um, could you help us sort of now make that leap from, uh, from the kinds of issues you're talking about in post-war Britain with the dawn of the NHS, uh, as well as 1962. And, and can we talk a little bit about what's happening today? Because of course, the elephant in the room right now is, is Brexit, and it's, a, it's looming, and people are worried yeah. about what kind of effect that's going to have on the NHS, on health, on free movement of people, and etc. Um, so just as we're closing, can you, can you use yeah. that historical lens to frame what we're sort of facing Absolutely. today? So I can, I can use it in two ways, something for everyone. Um, so on the one hand, before uh, Britain joined the European community and before the freedom of movement became a part of being a member of the United 
the European Union, Britain was perfectly capable of admitting skilled labor, of creating its immigration laws in such a way that it would admit the laborers that it wants and not admit the laborers that it didn't. And in fact, every time that laws came up that were going to uh, restrict immigration, it was very much debated in Parliament, in Whitehall, in the ministries of state, how the National Health Service would be protected. And this is because the National Health Service has always depended on uh, migrant nurses and migrant doctors. Um, and they have been a vital source of uh, labor and a vital source of the National Health Service's own heritage as a universal service. So on the one hand, I think the people who are saying that Brexit will be the end of the world um, maybe need to worry a little bit less about this particular aspect of it in that it is possible to craft legislation that will allow immigration of skilled workers according to whatever criteria you want. On the other hand, anyone who says that it's not going to be a problem is not looking at the fact that right now the National Health Service absolutely depends on incredibly talented and dedicated skilled medical professionals from all over Europe. So it's not going to go without a hiccup. The fact that Britain has been developing something called the hostile environment over the last five years has made the situation much, much worse um, and has made it an unattractive place to come and work in some cases. I think the NHS will still continue to import labor from all over the world as it does today. But I think that that's ignoring the fact that health services and health research benefit from movement. And it's not just the movement of skilled medical professionals. Another, another phenomenon that has been absolutely essential to successful medical research and biomedical research here in the UK has been the diversity of its population. Um, new research is being done on genetics, genomics, um, an array of subjects that relies on human diversity to be effective. And Britain is really rich in that because it has been a country that's been very open to immigration over the last half century. If we're going to get rid of that, we may lose much more than we think. Mm. That's, that's a really poignant point to end with, because I think we, um, we focus a lot on the immediate problems, which makes sense, of course. But the long-term damage of closing borders is, uh, is something people have trouble, I think, focusing on, partly because we have trouble imagining it. It's been so long since anyone has been uh, you say no man is an island, no country is an island, not even Britain, <laughs> even when you are an island. Um, there's a lot of a lot of connection. And th this is a connected world. And so I think we have trouble partly imagining what the consequences will be, because we actually have trouble imagining a world that isn't extraordinarily uh, connected. And, and I don't think that you can really go back. So there's a, a bit of nostalgia for things that um, I one of the things that strikes me as somewhat morbidly funny as a historian is the nostalgia for past that never existed. Yes, absolutely. So there's, there's a lot of nostalgia for a Victorian era that I see pictures of. That I think that no, that that's not at all no, what it was like. That, <laughs> that Victorian era was an era of absolutely unrestrained immigration mm -hmm. and enormous diversity. If you went to Cardiff or you went to London or you went to Liverpool or uh, North Shields during these periods, you would have seen really numerous um, and diverse ethnic populations. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Britain was never just people, white. <laughs> right. People look back on a past that doesn't actually exist. It's like, well, you've, you've cut a lot of That's things exactly out of that picture. Right. <laughs> well, thank yeah. you so much for joining us, Roberta. I hope we can have you on again. I feel that these conversations are ongoing and important and obviously um, not solved anytime in the immediate future. So thank you again for <laughs> well, joining us. Well, I really us. Is enjoyed there any- it. Thank you. Oh, is there anything you'd like to leave us with before we sign off? I would like to just point out that one of the things that we're doing here in Britain is doubling the cost of the NHS tax that is being paid by people to migrate to the country. This is a new fee and it's already doubled. And it's double taxation for people who are already working and paying tax in Britain. This is something that I think is fundamentally unfair. We fought against it in, uh, in earlier periods when this has been attempted before. I think it's something we should turn our attention to again. Fantastic. Thank you for letting us know. And Roberta, where can people find you? Are you on, are you on Twitter? Are you a uh, website? I'm on Twitter as at Roberta Bivens. So easy to find. And uh, I'm also, of course, readily available at the University of Warwick here in the Midlands. Thank you so much once again. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Medical Humanities Podcast. Stay in touch by reading the journal or our blog online. Just follow the links in the episode description. We're also on Twitter at medhams underscore BMJ or find us on Facebook. Until next time.